You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. I've thought long and hard about this question of extending the war in Asia. I've discussed it many times with the ablest military advisors in the country. I believe with all my heart that the course we are following is the best course. A number of events have made it evident that General MacArthur did not agree with that policy. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. ideals and ideologies have been determined on the battlefields of the world and hence are not for our discussion or debate. The terms and conditions upon which surrender of the Japanese imperial forces is here to be given and accepted are contained in the instrument of surrender now before you. As Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, I announce it my firm purpose in the tradition of the countries I represent to proceed in the discharge of my responsibilities with justice and tolerance while taking all necessary dispositions to ensure that the terms of surrender are fully, promptly, and faithfully complied with. I now invite the representatives of the Emperor of Japan and the Japanese government and the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters to sign the instrument of surrender at the places indicated. My fellow Americans, Supreme Allied Commander General MacArthur and Allied representatives on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. The thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There, on that small piece of American soil, anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. General Douglas MacArthur and President Harry Truman, two men standing at the center of the world stage at the end of the most important event of the 20th century and the end of World War II. The war world had come apart. Uh, you had the Japanese uh, and the Germans that had scattered out across the world and created so much misery and pain that it would be hard to even uh, put into words 
And these are the two men who at the very end brought that slaughter to an end. Harry Truman is president, dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and laying out the groundwork that he had inherited from Franklin Roosevelt uh, to bring that war to an end and, and to try to build a structure of peace with the United Nations, which was a project that went back to to Woodrow Wilson, in fact. But now it was time to build a peaceful world. Harry Truman, as president, had set that policy, and General Douglas MacArthur would go to Japan to implement rebuilding Japan and getting away from this warlike stance that it had taken uh, over those two decades. These were actually two men that the world, at the time, may have not known as well. Harry Truman kind of came out of nowhere to be vice president, president, vice president, eighty-two days uh, to be the president. And of course, Douglas MacArthur, of course, was this well-known, celebrated military figure uh, that the whole world did know, going back to World War One, where he had been a, one of the highest decorated Americans of, of the war. So. As luck would have it, or as history plays out, of course, it's hard for Americans today to have that sense of what a giant figure General Douglas MacArthur was. Uh, but they do know who Harry Truman was because he was President of the United States, and we tend to celebrate our presidents. But I thought to start this presentation out, because these two men are now going to clash on a huge scale as we get into the Korean War, that it might be good to take a look at the careers and lives of Harry Truman and General Douglas MacArthur. Here from C-SPAN is a look at Harry Truman, and then a newsreel tribute to General Douglas MacArthur that was put together when he died in the mid-1960s. He was the man from Missouri, a farmer's son who fought in World War I and married the first girl he ever loved. Harry Truman was perceived by many as honest and moral, as president, Truman kept a sign on his desk that said, The buck stops here. He also displayed a quote by Mark Twain, Always do right, it read. This will gratify some people and astonish the rest. My choice early in life was either to be a piano player in a whorehouse or a politician. And to tell the truth, there's hardly a difference. Truman grew up in Independence, Missouri, he wore glasses and, to avoid breaking them, obediently refrained from outdoor games, turning instead to quieter pursuits such as practicing the piano and reading books. His favorites profiled historical figures, and he soon came to admire the likes of Hannibal and Robert E. Lee. Also in his mind was Bess Wallace, a classmate he met in Sunday school. As a young man, Truman courted her persistently, proposing twice before she accepted in 1917. They wed two years later and would have a daughter, Margaret. The year of his wedding, Truman was 35 and had yet to find his niche in life. He'd already been a farmer, a railroad timekeeper, a bank clerk, and a volunteer officer in the First World War. Along the way, an unlucky business investment had cost him dearly and his new clothing store would go under in three years, leaving him in severe debt. But such setbacks challenged Truman, whose tenacity grew from a belief in his own success. I've always had a sneaking notion that someday, maybe, I'd amount to something, he once wrote Bess. 
The year his store closed, Truman was elected a Missouri County judge. It was an entry into public service that, in his own words, quote, just happened. But it was facilitated by the backing of a Missouri political mentor named Thomas Pendergast, whose support also helped Truman land a seat in the U.S. Senate 12 years later in 1934. Truman enjoyed the boisterous nature of the Senate. If you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, he liked to say. His enthusiasm sometimes got the better of him, however, and he would later become known for his feisty spirit and salty language. Truman displayed his fiery side the day he learned of President Roosevelt's wish to make him his running mate in the 1944 election. Reluctant to leave the Senate, Truman declared, tell him to go to hell. He eventually relented, however, and the next November was elected vice president, serving three months before Roosevelt died. When they told me what had happened, I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. After Roosevelt's death, he learned about the atomic bomb, a weapon he'd use four months later to precipitate the end of World War II. Truman worked hard to steer the nation into the post-war era, but his popularity dropped from 90% in August of 1945 to 34% by September of 1946. People joked that to err was Truman and observed that if a man like Harry Truman could become president, anybody could. That didn't stop him from seeking a return to the Oval Office in 1948. By that time, a Republican victory seemed so imminent that Truman's own mother-in-law considered his chances slim. But the odds were familiar ones to Truman, whose subsequent defeat of Republican Thomas Dewey would become one of the biggest political upsets in American history. His second term, marked by American intervention in Korea and mounting tensions with the Soviet Union, was more challenging than his first and Truman's approval ratings again began to sink. He declined to seek re-election in 1952 and left office the following year. Truman returned to independence, where he began work on his memoirs. He also lectured at universities and traveled the country stumping for the Democrats. In retirement, he refused to profit personally through speaking or consulting fees, noting that as president, he tried never to forget who he was and where he was returning. He died the day after Christmas in 1972 at age 88. Peace, my friend, is the goal of my public life. I'd rather have a lasting peace in the world than to be President of the United States. Army Douglas MacArthur in his 84 years became a towering figure of legend and fact. Serving under presidents from McKinley to Kennedy as advisor, he had not one but many careers almost unparalleled in military annals. The son of a general who was the highest ranking officer in the Army, young Douglas MacArthur was graduated from West Point with an average grade of over 98. In World War I, he was as major selected for the Army's general staff and helped to create the famed Rainbow Division. At 38, the youngest general in the Army was presented with the Distinguished Service Cross by General Pershing. 
A portrait of the time shows the young MacArthur with the bearing and appearance that made him one of the most colorful as well as eminent men of his age. After the war, MacArthur returned to West Point for three years as superintendent. In 1930, he was promoted to four-star general and named Army Chief of Staff. Upon his retirement at the end of five years, he was decorated by the Secretary of War. This would be for most men a time to rest, but General MacArthur became a field marshal in the Philippine Army. It was from the Philippines that he escaped in a PT boat after the tragic fall of Corregidor in 1942. Ordered to command the war in the Pacific from Australia, he applied to it the strategic genius that make military historians rank him with Julius Caesar and Napoleon. Their exploits are known to us only by word. Those of General MacArthur are recorded for historians of the future in the documentation of the motion picture that followed his career almost from its inception. Among the most memorable and inspiring pictures of World War II are those of his return to the Philippines to redeem his promise to those left behind. I shall return. To those who met him, he said, I'm a little late, but we finally came. It was in 1944 that he made his triumphal return to the scene of one of his and his country's bitterest humiliations. There were only 10 more months of the war to go then, but neither the general of the army nor the prisoners he so joyfully released from their Japanese prisons could know that as they carried on the conventional form of warfare, the atom bomb was being made ready to bring it to an end. The greatest moment of a life filled with climax came to General MacArthur aboard the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Harbor. Japan surrendered to him as commander of the war in the Pacific. His bearing was formal but courteous to the vanquished enemy. Then in Japan, as Supreme Allied Occupation Commander, General MacArthur supervised the formation of a new government. He captivated the people. Warfare, this time in Korea, once more summoned him to duty that was to be the grimmest and most frustrating of his life. As Supreme Allied Commander, he again used daring strategy. But as he was sweeping toward seeming victory against Red Chinese hordes, orders from Washington halted him. Though he was praised by South Korean President Syngman Rhee and decorated by his own President Truman, he was recalled. New York gave General MacArthur the greatest welcome it had ever given a returning hero. General MacArthur's last historical performance was his appearance before a joint session of Congress. The record of his address there is one of the most impressive and most moving of any ever put on film to preserve the memory of a great man. When I joined the army, even before the turn of the century, it was the fulfillment of all my boyish hopes and dreams. The world has turned over many times since I took the oath on the plane at West Point and the hopes and dreams have long since vanished. But I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers 
never die. They just fade away. And like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur, let's take a look at Korea. Korea was a situation that at the end of World War II, uh, they had to divide it up because the Soviets were in the northern part of Korea and the Americans, us, were in the southern part of the country. Uh, Dean Rusk, who would under President Kennedy be the Secretary of State, was a U.S. Army officer the night of the Japanese surrender. It, that ended World War II, and, and he and an army officer named Charles Bonsteel uh, tried to figure out how to, to divide the, the zones between the Soviet and U.S. zones in Korea. And they took a look at a National Geographic map of Asia, and they really couldn't find a natural barrier uh, for where a dividing line would be. So as luck would have it, they did their 38th parallel. They chose that, and that became the line that... Uh, that's been the dividing line for the Koreas ever since. Now that put Seoul, the capital city of what was in the American zone, what would become South Korea, just 35 miles from the border with what would be North Korea. In August of 1948, the Republic of Korea was established under the name, under the leadership of Sigmund Rhee. And not too long after that, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is North Korea, was established. And that came under Kim Il-sung. And there is your dividing lines and your two different countries that are formed in Korea. Now, Dean Acheson gives a speech in January of 1950. He is now the Secretary of Defense, or State. And in that speech he starts talking about and outlines what the U.S. Pacific defense posture is going to be as it pertains to Japan and the Philippines and, and our various allies throughout uh, Asia. And he doesn't mention Korea. And he even goes so far as to say, so far as the military security of other areas in the Pacific is concerned, it must be clear that no person can guarantee these areas against military attack. Well, guess what that did? It opened the door to Kim Il-sung to run his allies in Moscow and in uh, Peking in China to and say, hey, we need to liberate South Korea. The Americans are not going to fight over it. And so he goes and sells this to Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong that they would lead a, a force to liberate South Korea and make it communist and bring the Korean Peninsula together. On June 25th, 1950, he starts a military barrage, um, artillery barrage, over on the South Korean and begins the, the war in, in Korea. On the 27th of June, the United Nations Security Council adopt Resolution 83, which said that it authorized UN member states to provide military assistance to South Korea. Uh, the Soviets vetoed that res could have vetoed the resolution, but they had boycotted 
the proceedings because they believe the nationalistic government on, on Taiwan was not should not have been allowed to sit on the Security Council. So that was their out uh, for not uh, being a part of, of vetoing the UN's authorization for troops to be sent. Uh, Seoul falls the day after they start, on the 28th of June. So now it's in the hands of the communists. Communists from there are on the march. And over the next six weeks, they push the UN troops, which were not particularly prepared, the South Koreans nor the, or the troops, for what was happening, all the way back into a corner of Korea uh, where the Pusan uh, port is. And it's about a 5,000 square mile corner of, of Korea, and they have now cut uh, their strength, you know, the UN, and put them in a, in a spot where they were really kind of in a box. That is when General Douglas MacArthur shows up. He is in Japan, and he is now put in charge of the NATO forces by Harry Truman, and the NATO, is the Supreme Commander of Allied Powers there. And he's got to figure out how to get us out of that hole. United States troops are rushed into Korea from Japan. They are still armed with the weapons of World War II, and softened by the years of peace, they are totally unprepared for what lies ahead. Within 48 hours, General Douglas MacArthur, the legendary hero of two world wars, takes command of the United States troops in Korea. This, he says, is Ma's last gift to an old warrior. Of the war in Korea, he writes, I stood on a blood-soaked hill and watched for an hour the pitiful evidence of the disaster I had inherited. And then he went to work to figure out how he was going to turn that disaster completely around. What he did was come up with a plan that a lot of people thought couldn't be done. It was the amphibious landing 150 miles behind enemy lines at the port of Incheon in North Korea. MacArthur therefore decides on a tactic he used with great success during World War II. He will strike behind the enemy at his weakest point. He asks his aides, where on the Korean coast would they consider a landing impossible? When he's told Incheon, MacArthur says, good, then that's where we're going. from Washington come representatives of the Joint Chiefs of Staff concerned about MacArthur's Incheon proposal. General Collins and Admiral Sherman are sent to talk MacArthur out of the operation. The gamble, says Collins, is too great. If the enemy has fortified Incheon, assault troops will be slaughtered on the beach. MacArthur's staff insists the element of surprise ensures success. Remarks Collins, I wish I had MacArthur's confidence. As you can see from this 1964 produced documentary that Edwin O'Brien uh, narrated and that uh, talks about in John, nobody believed this was a was a plan that could work. But MacArthur had faith in it. And he was ready to do it. And it was something that he had done during World War II, as the documentary explains, by going and hitting them behind the enemy lines. And it worked. As the North Korean communists launched their surprise invasion of South Korea on 25 June 1950, United Nations forces began to withdraw. By early August, UN troops, outnumbered and under heavy pressure, had pulled back to establish a 120-mile defensive perimeter 
around the port of Busan. The problem that faced the United Nations commander was how to utilize his outnumbered forces so they could break out of the beachhead and take the offensive. Aerial reconnaissance had established that supplies and reinforcements for the enemy were being funneled along two main highways through Seoul, southeastward to the Pusan perimeter. After estimating the situation and considering several possible plans of maneuver, General MacArthur decided to make an amphibious attack behind the enemy lines at the transportation and communication hub which centered around Seoul. With the enemy's supply line cut, the 8th Army would be able to break out of the Pusan beachhead and launch a simultaneous attack from the southeast. However, before the amphibious attack could be launched at Seoul's port city, Incheon, high-level conferences were necessary. In mid-August, General J. Lawton Collins, Army Chief of Staff, and Admiral Forrest P. Sherman, Chief of Naval Operations, arrived in Tokyo to confer with General MacArthur and his staff. One of their main problems was the selection of troops to take part in the invasion, since the United Nations forces then engaged in Korea were sufficient only for the defense of the Pusan perimeter. Perhaps an even greater problem was presented by the tidal conditions at Incheon, considered among the most difficult in the world for an amphibious operation. Extensive studies were made of the area, including examination of scenes such as these, photographed in 1945 during the U.S. occupation. It was decided that mid-September would be the best time for an amphibious assault, but even then, special tactics would be necessary. In Incheon's harbor and at Wolmi, a small island which dominated the outer harbor, there was a 35-foot tidal range, leaving impassable mudflats at low tide. Assault landing craft would be able to approach the beaches only during the three hours of each high tide. Troops landing in the first waves would have to stick it out alone until the next high water. Meanwhile, it was decided that the 7th United States Infantry Division, which had been on occupation duty and undergoing training in Japan's snow-covered northern region, would constitute one major ground unit of the invasion force. The entire force would be designated the 10th Corps. Part of another major ground unit of the 10th Corps came from Camp Pendleton, California. They were members of the United States 1st Marine Division, which was at that time deployed in widely separated areas of the world. Other units of the division were assembled from the Mediterranean area and Hawaii. Still other 1st Division Marines were already in Korea, helping to throw back the all-out communist attacks on the Busan beachhead. Because of their combat experience, they were pulled out of the lines two weeks before the invasion to spearhead the attack on Incheon. While the invasion force was being assembled, B-29s and other planes of the UN Air Force were softening up the Incheon Seoul area for the assault. North Korean defense positions were destroyed and communist supplies and reinforcements from the north cut off. Ships and aircraft of the United Nations fleet joined in softening up the Incheon area. 
confuse the enemy, bombardments were directed at other coastal cities, including Pohang, Kunsan, Samchak, and Yangdok. By this time, the ships of Task Force 77, a United Nations armada, had left Japan with its cargo of 10th Corps troops and was nearing the west coast of Korea. Navy crews were getting ready for D-Day. Ground troops were making final preparations to hit the beach. On D-2, six UN destroyers closed in to draw fire from Walney's and Incheon's shore batteries so they could be definitely located. 1,000 yards, 900. As soon as the shore batteries opened up, our destroyers returned fire and moved in closer. The probing action was successful. Every shore battery fired and was pinpointed for later destruction by air and naval bombardment, thus preventing many potential casualties among troop-loaded transports and landing craft. One of the destroyers, the Colette, received direct hits from a shore battery only 600 yards away. The preparations were completed, and this was the invasion plan. At 0600, 15 September, after a pre-invasion bombardment, the 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marine Regiment would land at Walmy and secure the island during the hours of the morning high tide. On the evening high tide at 1800, the remainder of the 5th Marine Regiment and the 1st Marine Regiment would simultaneously attack the city of Incheon from the north and south respectively. These two regiments, followed later by the 7th Marine Regiment, would move inland as rapidly as possible along the Incheon-Seoul axis. Their primary mission was to capture the city of Seoul. As soon as possible after the 1st Marine Division was ashore, the U.S. 7th Infantry Division would be landed through the port of Incheon, proceed east along the Incheon-Seoul axis, then turn south towards Suwon to protect the southern flank and establish a line against which the 8th Army could crush the retreating communists. The 1st Korean Marine Regiment would clear captured areas and the 187th Airborne Regimental Combat Team would be held in reserve in Japan. On 15 September, dawn broke off the island of Walby. Guns of the 262-ship United Nations Armada began their point-blank preliminary bombardment. Tiny Walmy broke into flames as naval gunfire hit enemy ammo and fuel dumps. General MacArthur observed from the command ship. At 06.30, the invasion began. Fifteen seconds before the Marines hit the beach, the bombardment was lifted at Walmy, but continued at Incheon. They hit the beach on schedule, completely combat loaded. Because of the tidal conditions, men in this first wave could expect no supplies or reinforcements for 10 hours. The island was defended by about 400 soldiers of the 18th North Korean Division. 
But with the air and naval bombardment, as well as close ground support by the 1st Marine Air Wing, only sporadic resistance was encountered. Communist troops, in a state of shock, surrendered after only light opposition. By the morning of 16 September, Incheon had been taken against light resistance. While the 1st Korean Marine Regiment cleared the city, the United States 1st Marine Division started toward the Han River, and beyond it, the former South Korean capital of Seoul, which lay about 20 miles from the Incheon beachhead. Four miles out of Incheon, they passed burning Russian-made T-34 tanks. I hope that U.S. Army documentary on the Battle of Incheon gets puts in perspective just how totally they caught the North Koreans and the communists off guard by the invasion there and the move they made. It was not just a few days before or after that they would take back control of Seoul, which was the capital city, and they would be on the move, pushing the uh, communists back out, you know, they're on the other side of them, out of Pusan, and then back up past the 38th parallel, and then on toward the Yalu River. And it was then that President Truman wanted to meet with and talk with General MacArthur. MacArthur felt like the war now was almost at an end. He would go and they would meet at Midway, and it would be there that he would assure uh, President Truman not to worry about the Chinese, and his exact words to him were if the Chinese came in, he would make of them the greatest slaughter in the history of modern warfare. So they were very confident that they had this at ha- in hand when they would meet at Midway. And I don't think it's fair to say that General MacArthur uh, was lying to Harry Truman. I think he, he thought, given the move at Inchon, pushing them backwards, to the Yalu River, that this war in hand. And I don't know that they thought that the Chinese would risk a third world war, but Mao Zedong had been watching this whole situation and and he had studied uh, General MacArthur and his his aides had told them that they had, the the study that they had done on MacArthur had stressed not only his brilliance, but that his, his arrogance and that they were uh, going to try to take advantage of that, and that's what basically happened. But that's a little later. At Midway, as Truman and MacArthur met for the first and only time, which is kind of amazing when you consider how linked these two men are in history, they had no idea that the Chinese would come in, and it looked like they had the war in hand. Flying 8,000 miles to Wake Island in mid-Pacific, President Truman meets General MacArthur for the first time. Wake Island was the scene of a gallant American stand in the war. Near where the Japs landed, the conference was held. Experts, whose presence underlines the importance of the meeting, include Army Secretary Frank Pace and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Bradley. Before leaving, America's Commander-in-Chief decorates the United Nations Commander in Korea. Peace in the Pacific was the object of the President's long journey, and a tiny speck in the Pacific, the scene of its planning. In Korea, there are now more than 5,000 Turkish troops. When they sailed, things were at their blackest. 
those who fought him in 1916 found Johnny Turk a first-class fighter, and MacArthur would have found 5,000 very useful. Somewhere off the shores of North Korea, the battle fleet of the United Nations, including the British aircraft carrier Triumph, steams to bombard red positions. Escorts include Australian destroyers Waramunga and Bataan, as the big guns of USS Missouri are brought ready. On board Bataan, the Australian crew hear what the operation's all about. Men work better when they know why. From Triumph, the first plane flies off. On the ships, it's action stations. Anti-aircraft crews load up. Big Moe's guns are ready and the fire control officer opens up. Now shore batteries reply. Time and again, deadly fire like this from large and small ships of the fleet helped hard-pressed troops. And when the tide turned, the guns softened the way to victory. On October 19, 1950, the Chinese People's Volunteer Army, under the leadership of Ping Duha, a famous general there, entered the war, 300,000 strong. Some of the folks that served in our military said it was a sea of people, just Chinese people everywhere. But they entered the war on behalf of the North Koreans and pushed back what was the longest fighting retreat in American history. Seoul would fall again. It would eventually take change hand multiple times as this war went back and forth. But it created an enormous change in the momentum of the war. And that would lead to what's going to be the debate of our next episode. Harry Truman and the battle of containment in keeping the war contained and to avoid World War III and General MacArthur who believed that the goal of any war should be winning that war. It would lead to a policy dispute that was still debated long after Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur were gone from the scene, which is, do you fight limited wars or if you're going to get into a war, do you fight that war to win it? MacArthur's point was, you fight to win the war. But Harry Truman's was trying to contain a war to that peninsula and not have it become a World War III. But the larger debate between these two men would be who's in charge, the general in the field or the president of the United States.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.